This morning we're continuing in what is normally called the fifth and final sermon of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew can be, as most of the Gospel accounts, can be divided several ways. And one of the ways that folks have divided Matthew is along the lines of the five major sermons. It doesn't mean that nothing is taught outside of these blocks of teachings, but it does mean that within these chapters, these five sermons, if you would, are contained the major blocks of teaching of Jesus where there's basically no other activity. He's just teaching. He's teaching. It's not something that happens and he makes a comment, something that happens and he makes a comment. And so this would be the fifth block, chapters 22, 3, and sorry, chapters 20. Help me to remember. 23, 4, and 5. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get to it. I'm, I'm trying to get to it. So this morning we begin the fifth block of sermons on the, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 23 to 5. I mean, I should know where we are, right? Comprise the last of the five sermons that Jesus teaches before his arrest. <clears throat> so what we're going to do, we're going to, if you would, divide these chapters, this first chapter, 23, this way. And I think it's in your outline. I'm not sure. In verses 1 to 12, and it's important to see how these break down because Matthew, remember, is taking the activities and the teachings of Jesus, just like John, Mark, and Luke. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, each of these gospel writers is painting an aspect of the life of Christ. It's a collage. You know what a collage is. You get all these various pictures together. You put them together in a volume, and it presents maybe not the entire life of a person, but the basic elements and the activities of that life. And so Matthew is doing this, showing the Jews that Jesus is, in fact, their Messiah, their King, their anointed one, come to deliver them through his death on the cross. And so in this particular chapter, chapter 23, let's look at how he divides this. In verses 1 to 2, 12, he presents Jesus warning the people and the disciples to distinguish between the teachings and the practices of their leadership. In the next section, 13 to 26, Jesus pronounces, which we'll talk about next week, seven woes. These are seven judgments against the hypocritical teachings and practices of the religious leaders. And then in verses 37 to 39, concluding chapter 23, Jesus lamenting, remember, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you, except you would not. Remember that. And so that lament over the rejection of his people as symbolized in the rejection of Jerusalem. So let's read verses 1 to 7. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, so we have here Matthew is showing us he's speaking to both groups at this point. It's important because then he's going to turn just to his disciples in the next little passage. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. But do not do what they do, or do not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
They do all the deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Fathers, we continue to walk with you by the Spirit. Father, open our hearts and our minds and our eyes, our souls to the teaching of your Word, Father, as you speak to us through Jesus' words to the crowds and to the disciples. Father, for we know that whatever Jesus said to them, he saith also to us today. So, Father, it's as if we are part of the crowd, and we're hearing these words spoken to us immediately. Apply your word. Father, we want to be a people in whom hypocrisy and misunderstanding of your word is in every day a diminishing activity. Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in this section of the sermon, again, the sermon being chapters 23, 4, and 5, in this section of the sermon, Jesus is warning, again, against the false teachings which promoted the misuse of the law by the majority of the Jewish leadership. Now, let me say this, and I'll try not to make too many astray comments and hopefully get through most of the material today. When we look at this and consider the emphasis and the feeling that Jesus has about false teaching. He's not casual about this, is he? He's not saying, well, it doesn't really matter, Doug, what you think. As long as, you know, Charles, it's okay if you have this idea that's not quite biblical. It's okay. We think that way too often as the body of Christ. That's our thinking if we're not careful. It's okay if we have various opinions about a particular Scripture passage and how to apply them. Basically, friends in Christ, it's not okay. Amen? With God, it's not okay. Ours is to search, to know, to submit to, to pray about, to share, to do anything and everything biblically appropriate, to come to the understanding of what God is saying to us in His Word. And then it is as appropriate when we hear something which is a wrong or false, or even if we think it is teaching, if we think it is, at least we need to do something about it. And we need to be ready to know the truth sufficiently in order to share with another believer in the context of care and consideration what their error is. And there's error among us, isn't there? Any of us know the word absolutely perfectly? Of course not. And where there's error in the world, I was sitting next to a lady the other day when Jean was getting her Cadillac surgery, 
and you know that in the eye someone asked me if I had cat, cat, cataract I said no I'll drive a Chevy truck I'm trying to compete with Frank but I, I can't do that and so she sits next to me and we're in a small waiting room and she's actually loud I am not loud in public <laughs> something wrong with you girl that's not a joke <laughs> that wasn't your cue to laugh. You missed the cue. <laughs> so she sits down and says, are you a pastor? I said, yes, because she had my books open. I'm waiting for Jean's surgery to be finished. So she begins to explain to me all about spirituality and so on and what she thinks and whatever and how God is and how she has experienced the Lord. Now, I'm not sure whether she's saved or not. She could have been saved. There is, in this very short period of time, a thought in me, maybe she is saved, but she has some very aberrant understandings of the Word of God. Now, Andy, I could have sat there and said, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, and just kind of moved along. No, it can't happen. So I, I just politely said, well, what you just said, la, 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 whatever that was, do you know what the Bible says? Do you know what the Bible says? Well, no, but so-and-so and so-and-so and Saint somebody and whatever. I said, okay. But the most important thing is, what does God say? What does God say? And, and seriously, I wasn't abrasive or whatever. You know, just what does God say? What is about that? So she finally got up and moved to the other chair. I, I wasn't trying to get her to do it, Anna. Anna, she was just, you know, because she didn't know the Word. We must know the Word of God. We must know the Word of God. The world is filled with satanic potholes and quicksand for us and for our families and for our children and grandchildren. And I cannot get over the fact that there's so many in the church that are so casual about what we know of the Word of God. There is no other more important study in all of our lives than the study of the Word of God. And I know I don't have to bound this into you. So if you are listening to me in this class or wherever, and you don't make a priority of reading and studying and knowing and understanding God's Word, you are taking a major chance. No, that's a wrong statement, isn't it? I said it on purpose. There is no chance you will be in some way swallowed up by the enemy's deceptions. Because even the believers who know the Word the most are still subject to and from time to time fall for the deceptions of the enemy. Amen? I can tell you how easily it is to be swallowed up by a deception of Satan. That's just a free, what was that? Advertisement. And so in this in this particular section of Scripture, some have actually used this particular section of Scripture to accuse Jesus of being anti-Semitic, anti-the-law, anti-Judaism, anti. 
And so we have to remember this, that when we look at all of this, it looks on the surface that Jesus is here to undo that horrible, nasty, legalistic system that required men and women to do things that they couldn't do. That God put on them until Jesus finally came <gasps> to give us a breath of air and to free us. Oh, thank God for Jesus. But see, that's not what's happening. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 17, 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill. So don't misunderstand the difference between abolishment and fulfillment. And so we learn in Deuteronomy 6.5. Remember what Deuteronomy 6.5 says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. Remember that? And then Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as you are currently loving yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus says, hangs all the prophets and the law. That is the summation of the Old Covenant. The summation of the Old Covenant and the purpose of the Old Covenant and the uh, uh, direction of the Old Covenant and the underpinnings of the Old Covenant was having a relationship with God through the law and the Levitical legislation. And God's purpose was, I'm giving you this law to announce who I am and that I am the God of love and the God of glory and that to have a fellowship with me means that you will be brought into my presence, made fit for my presence by the Levitical legislation and through the keeping of the law and that you will love me and that you will love one another. That's the old covenant. Doesn't that sound like the gospel of Jesus Christ in the new? Amen? It is. It's the same one. But it has to be fulfilled so that we can have it internally without the continuing sacrificial system and have the power of the Holy Spirit to produce it in us, which was not available to them. Do you see the distinction? It is horrible sometimes what I hear from some of these preachers out there concerning the disconnect, if you would, the discontinuity of the old and the new covenants. It's not correct. It's bad teaching. That's why I say, be careful of teaching. Romans 13, 10, God's kind of love. God's love is the fulfillment of what? The law, of the law. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, stop there for a moment. Stop. Stop. Now, don't raise your hand on this because you're made to look foolish. How many of you would say, as I've heard many unbelievers say before they're saved, oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus before I was saved. I love God. Lord, I love God before I was saved. But when I was saved, I just could love him more. We've all heard that. We may all have said it. I don't know. Maybe we all have thought it. It is correct and incorrect depending upon how you define love. Before Christ, you did not have the love of God in you. Therefore, you could not under any circumstance love God with his own kind of love. Your love of God 
was surely a love, but it was a man-centered, man-promoted, man-benefiting, man-worshiping, man-me love with which you love God. And it was a love that God could not, therefore would not, accept. Do you see this? I've, I've talked about, and I'm going to do it next week, this issue of love. Why? Because our lives are absolutely intertwined and collected into this issue of love. Two types. Two types of love. So Jesus says, if you love me, with what, your love or God's kind of love? Which one do you think it is? God's kind of love. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And when an unbeliever says that, with all the sincerity of his or her heart, we cannot accept that as the truth. And we must be used by the Holy Spirit in some way to speak light and life into that dead and dark soul. Amen? We're not condemning but we are understanding the Word of God sufficiently so we are not being deceived by Satan into thinking that this is whatever it isn't. If you love me, then what? You will keep my commandments. You will keep the law. So Jesus came, and in the cross, he gathered up and fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. Sorry, in his ministry in life, he gathered up and fulfilled all the ministry and the purpose of the law. How did he do it? Perfect obedience. And then in his death on the cross, he paid the full, final, and forever payment, gathering up all the activities and all the purpose and all the power, that which was typological, looked toward him. In the sacrificial system that all stood for what he would do, he gathered up in his death all the full payment of everyone before the cross and after the cross who had ever disobeyed the law. Amen? He fulfilled it. And in his resurrection, that fulfillment comes to us in the gift of his Holy Spirit who applies to us and puts on our ledger, imputed to us, the very fulfillment and perfection of the righteousness of the life of Christ himself. It's God giving us a robe of righteousness which is not my own, but it is Christ's that I am wearing. And then the Holy Spirit, over the next many years of our lives, through a process, a process called sanctification, we are being conformed into the image of God's love in His Son, Romans eight twenty nine. We're being transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans twelve two. We are being we are being made to grow, if you would, spiritually into this robe that, when it is on us, it's way too big. But we are being grown into it, and slowly it begins to become more and more form fitting in us. Amen. And there was something else I wanted to say, but I now cannot remember what it was.
That's what God is doing in us. And he does it all because of his love and for his love, constituting us in his love, sanctifying us by his love, and developing in us his love and transforming our natural love for me into a supernatural love for thee. Correct? But you see, the leadership of Israel were not administering God's law in a way that declared God's love. The law and the prophets and the Levitical system were given to the people because God loved them. He loved them. And it was as a display of his love and as the activity of his love in and among his people, he gave this law so that as they adhered and obeyed his law and walked in his ways, and when they did not do it and they sinned, they had the Levitical system for the forgiveness of their sin, actually the putting away of their sin, the storing it up until Jesus takes all that sin upon himself so that his people could continue to be made fit for the fellowship of their God. It was God's love that was active in the Old Testament through the law. But you see, the Pharisees were teaching it differently. Their practices, as they sat in Moses' seat, Jesus said, when you're sitting in the seat of Moses and teaching the law that Moses taught and you're doing it that way, listen to it and obey that way. But then don't do what they're doing because their practices were not in keeping with what they were teaching of Moses' law. They were practicing otherwise, and some of their teachings were otherwise. But as long as they are doing and adhering to what Moses is saying, he said, that you can obey. I'm just looking at this so I don't miss a lot of what I want to say. Verses 8 to 10. Make sure I have said what I want to. Oh, I know. Well, give me a moment. I'm sorry to delay like this. 8 to 10. And Jesus continues, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you all are brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, this really kind of flies in the face of a lot of our religious activity, at least in this city, doesn't it? Now, my name is what? Peter Davidson. Some of you think my name is old man. Sometimes I think it is. But actually, my name is Peter. Some of you, wow, I didn't know his name. I thought it was legally old man. Nice to see you back, brother. Nice to see your side, too. But I have a title. Karen, what is my title? Pastor, elder. The old guy back there with the white hair. Raise your hand, old man. That's Phil Widener. He has a title. What is it? Elder. Now, does that mean that Chris, 
don't ever call me pastor. Jesus said, no, that, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the misuse of these titles for the aggrandizement and building up and puffing up of those whose title they carry. Right? That's what they're talking about. So you can call me pastor. I've been in a lot, well, sorry, I've been in a few meetings with other pastors. And I remember years ago, Mike Indes and I went to an Assemblies of God meeting of all the higher monks, you know, higher pastor, or what do you call it, administrators of the Assemblies of God Church. We were up in Alexandria, I think it was. And so everybody is introducing themselves and so on, and everybody's pastor this, pastor that, pastor that. Now, I'm a pastor with them. So I just said, what's your first name? <laughs> you know, there is a place where we have first names, but there is a place where we need to be recognized with first names. But there's also a place where we need to be recognized as pastor or teacher or covenant group leader or whatever it might be. Because the significance of the title is not about us. So, just because you said amen, I'll get you to ask you a question. I heard that amen. What is the significance to you of the title elder? What is it? It's about God. The significance to me of the title, we have our newest elder. I was going to say our youngest, by far not the youngest, that's for sure. Frank Gloria is now an elder among us. Amen. I want him to get some, to do something more than just, yeah, amen. Now, what is the significance of the title elder to you? It's about whom? It's not a trick question. It's about whom? God. It's about God. Frank would tell you. Phil would tell you. And the same would be true for them and for the other elders. I am passionate about protecting my title and my function as an elder. I'm going to fight anybody about that, and I'll fight other elders if I feel there's something that needs to be fought over. And sometimes we tussle with one another about these issues. I'm passionate about my title as pastor. Why? I'm going to fight over the, my position as pastor. Why? Because my identity, Jackson, is caught up in pastoring? No. Because David is, means something about me? No. It's about God and his great gracious work of giving to a man that which he absolutely under no circumstance ever has or ever will deserve in himself. And yet he does it. That's what Jesus is getting to here. False religion promotes me. And I'll probably say this next week. Frank calls it accurately in Alpha. What? Me theology. Meology? Oh, excuse me. Meology. Okay. 
Okay, meology. I stand to be corrected. I was wrong with that partic particular doctrine. You see, the problem isn't, and we've heard, some people take it, don't call any man father upon the earth. Well, I can't even call my dad father because Jesus. No, the issue is, the problem is not with the title. The problem is with those who are wearing the title, carrying the title, promoting the title, guarding the title inaccurately for and about themselves. That's the issue here. So we don't need to, and we need to be very careful of being, if you would, too literal. Yes, there is a place of being too literal in the Word of God. Going beyond the literacy, the literalness of the Word of God. So does that mean that Jesus said, don't ever call anybody by any title? No. It means that those who have titles given to them by God carry it with extreme humility, but with strong, defensible, biblical passion. That's how we do it. That's what this is all about, Camp Street. That's why. You had to tell somebody why I call you camp. So the problem was not the title. It was the problem was within the leaders. They had taken to themselves these titles for the purpose of identifying and promoting their own self-significance. I love, sorry, I shouldn't use that word. Well, maybe I do, and that's incorrect. And if I do, I'm wrong in that. When I used to go down to the upper room, which was on Parker Street in the 7th Ward, now, how many of you know where the 7th Ward is? How many of you know that today the 7th Ward for white folks is not a safe place? Come on, raise your hand. And how many of you know the 7th Ward for many black folks is not a safe place? And it was that way before Katrina. So I'd go down to Parker Street once a week on Wednesdays to teach down there. And the problem is, it's not that it's black people down there. The problem was that Crime had been concentrated in particular areas of the city. So you can go on Joe Blow Street. You can have white people, Spanish people, black people, China. It doesn't matter. That doesn't make it dangerous. It's the crime that makes it dangerous, amen, the sin. And so we would get together and we'd all be chatting around and other black pastors, you know, would be there and with him. we start chit-chatting and whatever. And I'm just saying, what's your name? Hey, my name's Peter. You know, what's your name? You know, Harlan. Okay, fine. Great. And then we would be chatting around and then somebody said, you know, he's a pastor. Oh, oh, pastor. Totally changed everything. All of a sudden, I was revered. Well, there is a place for reverence of the gifting and anointing and the usefulness of God in any man or woman. Correct? Correct? But we need to be careful. It doesn't make us of more significance than it makes you. It doesn't make us more elevated than it does you. It doesn't make any of us more whatever than it does you. It is a role distinction which is given by God 
why does he give these role distinctions? Because in the distinctions of roles within the church is to be manifested the distinction of the roles among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what roles and titles, if you would, are all about. They'll be displaying, they are to be displaying how God himself in this community of triunity, how these three distinct divine persons relate and function as a community of one, Deuteronomy 6.4. That's what our titles in the church are at least supposed to be about. That's what they were supposed to be about in Israel. But these men, because they were motivated by and inundated with self as their God, had turned these things into personal distinctions and badges of honor. I've said a lot about that. But we need to be careful that every one of us in this church, in the body of Christ, well, for, let me back up a little bit. How many of you, how many of you have a title in the church? Raise your hand if you have a title in the church. Now, we all should have raised our hands. For we all have the title of children of God, of sons and daughters of the Most High, of brothers and sisters in Christ. So how many of us have title, a title in the kingdom of God? How many of us? All of us do. You see how we think? It's dangerous to think this way. But in the context of all these titles, there are particular titles that accentuate particular activities of ministry and emphases that God is bringing about through particular people. Amen? All of us are titled. How many of you remember Joey Rombach? And how did, what did he call everybody? Either brother or sister. That's it. If you didn't know your name, Sister. Didn't know your name? Brother. I find that probably a better way of doing things. And so when you look at the New Testament, Jesus said, don't use these titles. Don't lean on me. He said, don't, don't, don't. And all of a sudden in the New Testament, you got all these titles. Well, you see, there's inconsistency there, you see, because these men weren't following the teachings of Jesus. They were following the teachings of Paul. Had a man the other day talk to me. I'm sitting in there minding my own business, and this time I really was, Linda. And he comes up to me, and he sees what we're doing, and he says, we, I mean we, yeah, Holy Spirit and I, I'm, I'm, I'm being taught. And feel better? Now, and he says, I have a problem. He says, I can accept the teachings of Jesus, but Paul was a womanizer, and he goes down the list. And he says, why should we accept the teachings of Paul? It's just Jesus. And there are many in the church that think this way. And so we went through the whole, if you would, ordination process of Paul. Do you remember the ordination process of Paul? Do you, do you know where it is? Where's the ordination process of Paul listed or recorded? It begins in Acts chapter 7 and continues in Acts chapter Nine, and that it is further explained by Paul in Galatians chapter 1 and in other areas. God chose and anointed this man. The Lord Jesus says, Saul, Saul. And so when I shared some of that, 
this fellow just looked at me, and you could tell that he understood something of the disconnection of his understanding of the Word of God. These titles, 11 and 12, and here's the, here's the essence of what these first 10 verses are all about, about being called rabbi and teacher and father. Don't look for the best seats. You know, don't do all that. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Why does he say that? Because these men had taken the Jewish religion that God had given and had polluted it by causing people to think that servanthood in their kingdom or in Israel was on the basis of being somebody in yourself. Does that make sense to you? Did I, did I communicate clearly on that? Jesus says, my people, the greatest, and I have trouble with this. I struggle with this personally, to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, to be the greatest person in this church is not the senior pastor. It's not even the senior who is a pastor. The greatest servant in this church is the servant. I'm sorry, the greatest person in this church is the greatest, the one who serves the greatest. Servant. Why? Because greatness in the kingdom of God is the opposite of greatness in the world. Greatness in the world is self-promotion. Greatness in the kingdom of God is God-promotion. And God-promotion is identified and revealed and accentuated in serving. And where do we see that mostly displayed most powerfully? In the life of Christ, which culminates where? And he submitted himself in Philippians, remember chapter 2, verse 8, to the cross, even to death on the cross. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? The Lord Jesus is. Who was the greatest servant? The Lord Jesus. Why? Because he was humble in heart. He humbled himself. He refused to put his own personal self-interest forward before the interest of the Father. And by putting the interests of the Father first and keeping them always before him, never allowing himself to put his own interests forward in any way whatsoever. He never put his own interests forward. Never. He asked if it could be done one time, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Several, remember that? If it be your will. He asked about it, but then he said, nevertheless, not my interests, not something for or about me as a human being, but all for and about your will, Father. Humility. Whoever is the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And where is that exampled mostly? 
when you read Philippians 2, 6 through 8, you see that Jesus did not grasp at greatness. Remember, Eve and Adam grasp at godness. You shall be like God. They grasp at it. Remember that? In the garden, they grasp at it. Jesus in the next garden refuses to grasp. He refuses to grasp. You see it in the uh, wilderness. He begins it that way. I will not grasp. And then you see it culminating in the garden where the enemy, if you would, is tempting him. Don't do it. Don't do it. There must be another way. And ask if there's another way and grasp at it. And Jesus says, thy will be done, not mine. He refused to grasp. One of the issues that we have to fight as people of God is how do we hold the ministry that God has given us? How many of you have a ministry in this church? Raise your hand if you have a ministry. What is wrong here? Every single person in Christ has a ministry to live and to share the gospel. How many of us have a ministry in this church? Yes, now, it may be developed in this particular avenue or doing this or that. All of us have a ministry. Why? We're ministers of the Most High God. Isn't that right, Rosa? So you've got, you got a ministry, son, brother, sister, daughter. You have a ministry. The issue is not do I have a ministry. All of us do. Mine is a particular type given by God. I didn't ask for this. Gene would tell you, I didn't ask for this. When they said I should become a pastor, I said, what are you kidding? I own a business. I shouldn't become a pastor. Will you pray about it? Oh, now I'm not going to. Six months it took us. And then after that hired, it took me, what, probably two years to try to get, did I make a mistake? It took easy two or three years to try to still figure out, I think I goofed. question is not do I have a ministry does the ministry have me in one way the ministry of Christ does have us and it's supposed to but we have to be careful how we consider and carry out that ministry is it mine or is it Christ's in me I hear too many people my ministry my ministry hopefully they mean the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through me, Beth. Hopefully that's what they mean. Too often they don't. So when I hear somebody saying, if you said, you're going to hear me. My ministry, I'm going to ask, what do you mean? It's your ministry. Because, Johnny, normally when we say my ministry, it could be a confusion of terms. I, I, I understand. But too often I am clutching. And listen, my meaning Listen, and my significance. Listen, and my joy. Listen, and my peace. Listen, and my whatever is too intricately, intricately connected with the ministry. And that's idolatry. Because my peace and my joy and my meaning and my significance, where is that found, Murphy? Not in the ministry, but in him who gives the ministry. And there are many who, if the Holy Spirit were to take away your ministry, especially if you're like Anna, she does some instruction. You know, um, um, what's your name again? Annette does uh, ministers to the ladies in the church and many where. Uh, Ron Alman is a, a covenant, et cetera, et cetera. What happens if I don't have my ministry? What happens if I'm no longer a pastor in the official sense? What happens? 
How do you feel about it? Are you willing to release it if you feel the Holy Spirit says release it? Do you feel less? What are you going to do? Who are you now? Are we not still the sons of the Most High God being used by Him according to His will? Amen. This is what Jesus is talking about. Let me grasp you with the ministry rather than you grasp the ministry for me. Let me grasp you with my ministry rather than you grasping for that ministry, if you would, for Jesus. It's for Jesus, don't you say? No, no. Maybe so, but I think you better think it out again. So what happened when Jesus didn't exalt himself? Did you read the rest of Philippians 2, verse 9? Wherefore also God has highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, at the name of what? This servant, this one who humbled himself and as a man would not and did not grasp at anything about God, but allowed God to grasp him. And he didn't make himself of somebody. He allowed the Holy Spirit to make God something in him through his humility. Wherefore, God has given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Exalted. In the end, who is exalted? In the exaltation of the Son, who is exalted? The Father. In our exaltation, and we will be experiencing exaltation one day. If you're in Christ, you will be exalted. And whom are you exalting? You're exalting Christ in you, which when Christ in us is exalted, the Father is exalted. Amen? And the Holy Spirit is exalted because He is the one who has applied the exalting work of Christ in our lives on a regular and daily basis, bringing us to the conclusion of this exaltation. Amen? This is the love of God. This is the love of God. And next week, we're going to talk about love again. And the reason is, is because we still have too much of a problem in loving me. Meology, as Frank calls it. So, see you next Sunday.